talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Lushkin is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. I have a feeling my name is on the list of Canadians who are now banned from Russia. That's gonna stink. Here's Scott Thompson! There you go. Who is it? Even a couple of uh, Hamilton uh, counselors on the Russian list. There you go. Uh, cancel those spring break plans. I'm Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton Today at 900 CHML in Hamilton and uh, 980 CFPL in London. Another jam-packed uh, day today uh, with uh, the usual cast of uh, stories that uh, have kept us uh, gripped for, my goodness, 21 days for the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine. And uh, today, this morning, earlier this morning, about uh, 9 a.m., uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine uh, addressed uh, the U.S. Congress very much the same way he did uh, the House of Commons the other day, and very similar, uh, except a U.S. version of, uh, with uh, making references to 9-11, making references to Pearl Harbor, uh, very much as he did with uh, us and, and using uh, cities and, and, you know, things like the CN Tower. So uh, also the difference between uh, the speech that uh, he, he delivered today to uh, Congress and what we saw was it came with a video, which, uh, again, many have said this because of uh, Zelensky's past career as an actor, comedian and such. Uh, he knows the use of social media. He knows uh, the uh, value of being a great communicator. Uh, and he is obviously that a great communicator and uh, literally has the whole world uh, watching his every move. And, you know, a stark uh, contrast to uh, Putin, who uh, very stoic. You see him sitting at tables, uh, meeting with his staff. And it's it's like they're at the other end. Almost looks like a Disney cartoon. They're at the other end of a table, uh, you know, about five, six, seven meters away, it appears. So uh, clearly a, a different uh, type of leader and the more and more that leaks into Russia uh, that could be that could be a saving grace many are asking you know he's he's basically delivering the same message uh, to each and every uh, government that he addresses also obviously looking for the skies to be closed and and that sort of protection he alluded today uh, that he understands that that could not necessarily or is not necessarily possible and we all know why uh, World War three but also came up with uh, some options and and in different ways in which the US can help which we'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on so uh, obviously the value of Zelensky doing these addresses in every single uh, uh, chance he can as far as a parliament and exposing more and more and more people to uh, what in fact he has uh, he's living through and what his country is going through uh, the more that message gets out uh, the stronger the case is for uh, what he is talking about. Also talked about, uh, and we're going to talk about this a little later on as well, uh, realizes that perhaps NATO is not an avenue for them. Uh, very much a bargaining chip, no doubt.
out with Russia. So positive news there in the sense that um, although we're continuing to see the destruction, at least uh, maybe, maybe, just maybe we're making some ground. Tony's on the line. Tony, what are your thoughts? Good afternoon. I was just wondering, we had, uh, with what happened in Germany when they took over Poland, everyone sat back and tried to negotiate, and then we ended up with a Second World War. Now, Russia has rattled the saber there and gone into Ukraine, and they've come very close to Poland as far as blowing up an air, airport, uh, army base, uh, uh, to the Polish border. What would be, would there be a bit of a more deterrent if all the neighboring countries around the Ukraine started to amass uh, anti-aircraft guns, military service, planes, on their borders bordering Ukraine and say to Russia, well, if you guys uh, get too darn close, we're going to start retaliating and we're going to have a, a united force against you uh, so to protect our own people. I think in a sense they're, they're, they're trying to do that, Tony, because they're obviously bringing in lots of arms in the back door uh, through Poland, which is obviously helping them fuel the war that, uh, with the weaponry and, and what else that they do have. Yeah, but that's, um, that's, yeah, that's I, only given uh, ammunition to the uh, Ukrainian soldiers yeah. to, to resist. This is to uh, show a form yeah. of deterrence to uh, Putin and uh, the Russian army that, hey, enough is enough. If you endanger us, we're going to come at you with everything we can possibly come at you with. We're going to come at you with planes. And so, aircraft. Tony, you're saying, Tony, you're saying just, okay, we're going to line up all our guys along the other side of the border and, uh, and, and show that as a sign of force. Right. Just yeah. like Russia did, did uh, on the, uh, for the last... Send in another, send in another convoy. Send in another convoy, says Tony. All right, thanks for the call. Much appreciated. Uh, the lines are lighting up, and we'll donate as much time to this as you want to talk. Bob is on the line. Bob, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's good afternoon. Uh, a little bit variable, but uh, the way Ford is giving our public money to uh, the automotive industry, which don't need the money, and then turning around saying, we've got to privatize our health care, with our public money, uh, I find this a bit uh, confusing. Maybe you can get them on the air to say, how come we got all this money for to subsidize the industries and don't have it for health care when it's our money? Uh, you know, that's health care, which is a, two, a totally different topic than what we're talking about I right know. now. But anytime I can so get Bob and Bob, anytime I can get anytime, Bob, I can get the uh, the premier of Ontario or any of those leaders on the air. Believe me, we get them on. Uh, it's know. usually we're, we're at their beck and call. But, yeah, we'll have that discussion. We're pretty much talking about Ukraine. But thanks for the call. Much appreciated. I want to get back to Bob's question. So, Bob, if you're listening, listen up, because uh, I had to cut Bob off because it was sort of a different topic and we were coming right up against the uh, the traffic there. So um, Bob asked, uh, how come the Ontario government's giving money to Honda for uh, the car plant and not doing more for uh, health care? And it's a, a great question, but it needs to kind of be split up. First of all, let's deal with the auto part of it. Uh, and here's my answer, and it's just as a guy sitting here on the other side of the microphone. Um, Honda, just like uh, they did with Ford and General Motors, they've um, uh, given them money to retool to build the next generation automobile, which is electric vehicles. Uh, uh, obviously, Ontario, massive uh, auto industry has been like that for like 100 years. Uh, it's really going to change once we move to EVs. 
So they sort of have to keep up on that. And if we want to keep all those people employed in the auto industry, I think it was like 4,000 at the Honda plant in Allison where they were today. Uh, we got to make those adaptations. We've got to, we've got to realize that EVs are the way of the future. And that's, that's, we're going to, going to be a part of that. Uh, as far as the hospitals, uh, I, I believe that, um, COVID-19 has, uh, present, has shown us where the weak links are in uh, the Canadian healthcare system. And what it has done is it's given an example right the way across the country in each individual province has had to deal with the exact same problem at the exact same time. So what we've noticed is that every province has struggled. Every province is dealing with the same issue, and that's not enough funding. So the funding formula needs to be rejigged, whether that's more government money, whether that's more private health care money. That's a debate that still has to be had. But at the end of the day, when Medicare all started and everybody loved it, and the one that everybody boasts about it, the federal government used to pay 50% of the cost. The province would pay the other 50. Now the province is paying uh, like 75, 80 80 percent and and the, the feds are paying 20 so you can blame it on you know the ontario health system the Quebec system the bc system uh but they're all suffering from the same issue and that is the funding formula is broken it needs to be addressed and whenever the federal government is asked about it they push it off to the provinces and say it's the province's responsibility again they're not giving the provinces enough money to allow them to do the job so um you know that's a discussion that needs to be had so uh, you know you, you keep hearing and you're going to hear more and more as time goes on out of COVID about how, uh, what Ontario needs to be doing. And it's, it's not an Ontario problem. It's a problem right the way across the board. It's something that BC, uh, Premier Horgan, uh, announced uh, maybe about a month ago when he had a conversation with all the premiers demanding a meeting to talk about this. Uh, unfortunately, we're not there yet. That's what needs to be done, in my opinion, to fix the healthcare system. Let's move on. Uh, Honda Canada, as we mentioned, uh, announced that, uh, it's going to spend 1.38 billion dollars over six years to upgrade uh, the manufacturing plant there in Allison for uh, hybrid vehicles. I believe it's 136 million from both the feds and the provincial government, both uh, Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford on hand for that announcement. Doing the two-step, doing the dance, uh, loving it when these two boys uh, jingle jangle. It, it's, beneficial, it's, beneficial, it's beneficial to everybody. Uh, let's talk to David Booth, driving.ca, columnist and senior writer for Post Media's weekly driving section, and get his opinion on all of this. David, how are you? I hope you're doing well. I am and very busy today, surprisingly. <laughs> I can imagine. What are your thoughts on this? Because, again, we had a caller that said, why are we spending money uh, to give uh, big manufacturers of vehicles money and subsidizing these? Well, I'd ask that same uh, uh, listener, uh, why do we breathe? I mean, basically, this is the way business is done. If you don't do the business, you don't uh, you don't get the job. So, I mean, from that point of view, it's it, it, this one was actually relatively cheap com- uh, in comparison when you compare the uh, the percentage of uh, input from the governments to the investment Honda's making. So, I think it's money well spent. And let's remember that uh, Honda's been around for a very very long time. They're employing forty two hundred people already uh, in this particular manufacturing uh, place. They, I think they. Uh, uh, have about tw- more than 20,000 employees um, Canada-wide. So I think it's a very good investment. And it leads to, other, it. well, it should lead, uh, we hope it leads 
to full electrification at these plants eventually. I mean, it'll only be hybrids from uh, for now. It'll be for sure the CRV hybrid. Uh, there's a possibility it'll also be a Civic hybrid, which is due to be unveiled in the next few months as well. We've already seen spy shots. And those would uh, certainly extend the product life of that plant for probably the next five or 10 years. You talked about the uh, the other plants, including Oakville and, and, and their scenario, and and obviously building an electric vehicle is a lot different than, than building a, uh, a, a typical combustion engine uh, vehicle. So with this, they're building hybrids. Does this retooling allow them to make that jump to those EVs, if necessary, uh, more easier uh, or, or easier, uh, simply because this is a hybrid uh, retool at this point? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they both have batteries. It's a lot closer to a normal combustion uh, power, uh, plant, um, and certainly mm-hmm. the assembly process will be a lot similar. Um, the 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 chassis and everything else will be more some more similar to a current CRV than say a fully electrified CRV uh, uh, going down the line. But um, it's certainly puts us with a, an electrical expertise. When, when you think, when you add everything up that we're doing, building electric cars uh, in Oakville, building battery plants, uh, at least a couple in um, Quebec, uh, Windsor is trying to add a battery plant plant for Stellantis. Anything that has a battery in it is going to add to our expertise in Canada to building anything that's electrified. So even from that standpoint, I think it's worthwhile. Now, can, it does the uh, modification to handle the the, the the hybrids automatically make it um, a plant also for EVs? No, it wouldn't. It'll, it'll need another requirement for that. Uh, one last quick question. Only got to less than 30 seconds. Should we be okay. subsidizing these vehicles? Uh, the, pri- the premier was asked that. Oh, that's a long one, eh? Oh, gosh. I mean, I okay, let's assume it's a fait accompli. We have subsidized them in the past. We are still subsidizing them uh, on a federal level. Should we be doing it at a provincial level? Maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. The bigger question is when do these subsidies end? Right now, it's been an open, uh, a blank check, an open uh, schedule. There's been never any talk about when the subsidies will end, Hmm. uh, you know, on a federal level, Quebec and BC. And, uh, you know, they they keep saying when, uh, when EVs are at price parity, with gas cars, then they won't need the subsidies anymore. I haven't seen any movement in the direction of price parity, so I've seen no movement in the end of mm. uh, the end of subsidies. So, David Booth, got to let you go there. Thanks so much for the opinion. Driving.ca, columnist and senior writer for Post Media Weekly Driving Section on EVs. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, uh, big story in the United States, very similar to the other day in Canada. Uh, the Ukraine President Zelensky speaking to U.S. Congress this morning, uh, very similar to he has in the U.K. and uh, did in Canada. And as well, uh, very similar style in the sense of referring to certain events and, and certain symbols in the United States, uh, as well as uh, bringing along a video of of what exactly is happening uh, in Ukraine. And now joining us, a guy who's uh, on his way to Ukraine. Uh, Brian Cram is with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter and host of Just Ask the Question podcast, author of the new book, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. 
thank you, and uh, hopefully we will be well. <laughs> so tell us about your tell us about your adventure, what you're about to do, uh, what you're going on, what you're doing. Well, we're headed there to talk to uh, refugees and to talk to some of the uh, parents and surrogates, a lot of children that have been left behind in Kiev and uh, Lviv because of the bombing from Russia. Uh, late this afternoon, about uh, within the last hour, uh, our president, uh, Joe Biden, declared that uh, uh, Vladimir Putin was a war criminal, and we're going there to document some of the war crimes that uh, have occurred since the invasion of Ukraine uh, three weeks ago. And where are you flying into? Where are you going? What, what's that journey like for a reporter? Give us some sort of sense of, of what it's like to be on the ground in a, in a scenario like this. Well, it's uh, as much as you prepare for it, you can ever be totally prepared for it. I've been in 12 different conflict zones, and you uh, you have to make sure you have good security around you. You also have to make sure that um, you're prepared for whatever's going to come your way. Russia has re- uh, reportedly has, uh, or Putin has put together strike forces to go after, actually hit squads to go after reporters. So there's an extra special caution that you're you're going to have precaution you're going to have to take when you're uh out on the road on this one so it's uh it, it's dicey but it's doable brian uh our thoughts are with you be well through all of this uh, obviously president Zelensky addressing u.s congress uh today the response the impact give us your thoughts well i think it made a, a deep impact on the legislator's in the United States, and some of them turned around and, you know, the Republicans blame Biden for it. But the truth of the matter is there's nothing that's more touching than seeing a guy who's willing to put his life on the line, show the American public exactly what uh, his adversary is doing and how uh, criminal it is. And it took a lot for him to do it. It was uh, met well by uh, American legislators. It was uh, greeted well by um our our executive branch i think it was what he needed to do i don't think it's going to end up with a no-fly zone because that would put us uh the problem with that is it puts our pilots in direct uh uh contradiction to the the russian pilots and you're going to end up in combat and that's not anything that we want to see uh it's Zelensky has already called this the beginning of world war three he's not the first to do it uh but it's sobering coming from him to say that uh, it's a war by proxy for the West. It's a war in actuality for Russia. So the next six weeks are, are going to be very, very uh, touch and go. And uh, I think it will depend a lot on what happens in the next six weeks as to whether or not they can bow out of this gracefully or it's an uh, ongoing and, and uh, continuing touchy affair. We certainly know the discussion about uh, the no-fly zone and and the fact that NATO countries just can't go in there and defend Ukraine, who is not a NATO country. Uh, You know, many have questioned what line needs to be crossed in order for that to happen. And obviously, it's one of the borders into one of those NATO countries. But it seemed to come out today, and I even noticed this in the tone of of what Zelensky was saying, was that he he understands or he's more accepting of the fact that uh, that line can't be crossed for obvious reasons but then provided some options and 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 um, you know another wish list per se yeah i think his his request for material uh will will obviously be filled there's 800 million dollars that the president has pledged uh you know new money that he's pledged to material to fight the war 
I think it's going to be that kind of um, look. One thing that this <laughs> that Putin's chosen war has shown us is that uh, the Russian military is not uh, the world beater that everyone was fearful of. Yeah. Ukrainians so far have been able to thwart the advance. And um, I, I, you can also see that the Russian people are not into this war. Uh, there are all kinds of reports of uh, Russian troops abdicating, you know, uh, the front. And hell, today it was, uh, you know, uh, Zelensky offered for every pilot that, you know, uh, comes over to their side, they'll give them a million dollars. So I, I, I think that uh, Russia's got a, it's going to be a hard lesson. I think what, uh, Biden is trying to do is to strangle the life out of the Russian bear economically. And if um, NATO is successful and if the European Union is successful in doing this, then when Biden says Russia will be permanently weakened and NATO and Europe uh, uh, permanently strengthened, I think that's at least for the next 40 or 50 years, he would be correct. And so it's that's at some point in time, it's got to be the people closest to Putin Telling him enough is enough before this comes to an end. And you bring up a valid point about uh, the Russian army certainly isn't the army that it was during the heyday uh, of the Soviet Union, with obviously the difficulty they're having. That being said, Brian, how long do you think the, everybody else can keep propping them up through the back door and, and you know, uh, bringing the ammo in through the back door and, and, and holding off uh, Russia? Oh, I think that's uh, that's a really good question, and I wouldn't even speculate as to how long it, it, that will occur but you've got to if you're a ukrainian at this point in time you've got to be a lot more confident than you were in the opening days of this mm. conflict it putin at one point in time kind of reminded me of what i saw in the gulf war when uh, we were told uh, that american troops would swim in rivers of their own blood and there were you know threats from uh, Iraq that they were going to destroy the American uh, military and of course it turned out to be just a lot of high wind in the trees a lot of what Putin has said is uh, equally as uh, pompous and equally without substance and people are beginning to see that and that if you're Putin that's got to be frightening to you and that's why it's a very precarious time for the world uh, to get him to stand down uh, without the success he wants, without utilizing weapons of mass destruction to destroy and, and, and initiate a global thermal nuclear war. That's what everyone is really scared of. Brian J. Karam with us, White House reporter, political analyst for CNN, on his way to Ukraine in order to uh, do stories on the refugees and, and, and the situation that this has caused as a result of the Russian invasion. Brian, take care of yourself. Good luck. We'll look for your stuff. Be well. You too, my friend. Good to talk to you, as always. Before the, the conflict started and the, and Russia invaded Ukraine, we were on our way out sort of of a uh, global pandemic and and things were or are looking well. More and more of us vaccinated. Great to see. And slowly restrictions and, and such uh, uh, coming to arrest. We're going to find out tomorrow uh, that the federal government is... Um, uh, sources say uh, going to uh, uh, relieve the protocol at the airport in regard to testing on April 1st. So uh, that's the news that uh, hopefully will break tomorrow and um, 
travel, look out. I mean, this is the last uh, last sort of uh, hurdle that the travel industry needed to uh, to get back to normal. So uh, good news as we are. Um, but during all of this, we talked and 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 very much so, and and recognized the weak links in many systems, including our healthcare system. And we saw this pretty much all the way across the country, um, as you know, everybody dealing with the same sort of of issues and 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 you know things that um, I guess we always talked about but nobody really paid much attention to until COVID-19. Let's bring in Dr. James Thiessen, Director, Master of Health Administration, Community Care, and Associate Professor in the Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University, and with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank Good afternoon, Scott. Uh, I remember during this pandemic, many people, I got about halfway through, the, we started having serious discussions like, when this is all over, we've got to chat about our healthcare system. Uh, we saw Premier Horgan, uh, I guess about uh, six weeks ago, uh, having a conversation with all the premiers and presenting something to uh, the Prime Minister, uh, obviously suggesting that we need to come up with some sort of change to the funding formula, whether that's aid from the government, whether that's aid through private industry or such. Are we ready to to have that discussion now, doctor? Absolutely. We've been ready for certainly in a year anyway, as, as you correctly point out, um, the pandemic really exposed problems in our system, particularly in long-term community care, but more broadly, there's lots to fix. So, uh, obviously, during this uh, global pandemic, uh, we saw our healthcare workers and the stress and fatigue that they are still under, um, and, and very much our heroes. We remember the, you know, 7 o'clock, go out on your porch and bang your pots and pans. Uh, the Ontario government gave them a $3 increase an hour, $3 an hour increase uh, to get through uh, the pandemic and such. Uh, it was a temporary thing. It keeps being renewed, comes to again an end on March 31st. Uh, the Ontario government has decided to make that permanent. Uh, your thoughts on that? Is that a start? Isn't that terrific news? Um, you know, you're always worried about the flavor of the day or flavor of the moment. And certainly long-term care and health care and pers- personal support workers particularly were in the spotlight a couple years ago and these problems were exposed as i said so it's great to see that um, the government is committed to paying them more Uh, it's just i think it's just terrific news it doesn't fix all the problems but it certainly is a big start uh and we certainly know of the burnout we've certainly heard of the stories of those that have left and may not come back uh, uh, on the other hand, we certainly have heard of, uh, like we're suggesting, uh, changes that need to be made, more put towards education. Is Could we use this as a turning point, as a opportunity to uh, create a more robust industry, get people into this industry, give them incentive to choose this as a career? I, I, that's a great point. This This is the moment. Um, if I was a young person, I would look at the sector and say, let's go in. Um, and and we, they have to look beyond the hospitals. Um, and, and frankly, the, the program, I don't mean I'm not here to shill for the program that I'm director of the Master of Health Administration Community Care. 
But one of the um, thoughts behind the introduction of the program was to make community care and home care particularly, which we know is an answer for saving money, right? You want to keep people at home where they want to be. Mm -hmm. But we want to make that sector a career destination, not someplace you work because you can't get a hospital job. So I, I agree. I think this is, and we want more better um, advocacy. The pro There's a problem in that sector that it's been so underfunded for so long. Anyone who has family in that system, in the long-term care facility particularly, know that they're all strapped. We just need more, more, um, more workers. They need to be paid better. And uh, <laughs> you, you asked a great question, so my answer is probably longer than it should be, but I'll say that Everyone, who, again, who's had family and long-term care institutions, while there's been some issues and certainly troubles during COVID, everyone knows an angel personal support worker who's helped out a grandmother mm. or grandfather. And, you know, it, it appeared for a while COVID-19 scared some away from the health care industry, mm -hmm. and perhaps this is an opportunity to reverse that. I certainly hope so, because long term, um, we're going to need the, the people in that sector. It's um, an important sector. Yeah, it, we're looking at um, expanding at the start of the lifespan, more childcare, um, and they're having difficulty finding care workers um, and edu childhood educators. Similarly, as you indicate, we're having struggles in the um, long term and community care sector. Um, so we've got to make it worth their while. But another issue, though, we know that it has to go beyond um, more pay for the PSWs because the RPNs who are higher in the um, mm. pay scale now are going to want some more money, too, and they deserve it. Dr. James Teason with us, Director, Master of Health Administration, Community Care, Associate Professor, Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University. The good news that uh, Ontario PSW's uh, workers will keep their three hour, $3 an hour wage increase. Doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Be well. Thanks so much. And you too, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Reports uh, coming out this week that COVID-19 is surging again in China. Uh, is this something we should be concerned about? What is the reasoning for this, considering where we are with vaccination and such? Uh, two years later, this all started uh, over two years ago uh, with Wuhan, China. And now uh, here we are two years later where we, well, we are uh, obviously coming out of it. It seems they're heading back in. Reasons for that, let's bring in Dr. Tim Sly, epidemiologist, School of Population, Public Health, Ryerson, and is with us now. Uh, doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, uh, Scott, good afternoon. So I heard some really interesting uh, uh, points in the story I read yesterday about this. And, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm hearing 37 million are in lockdown. Um, uh, in Hong Kong, only 30% of those 80 plus are vaccinated fully, that they do not have access to an mRNA vaccine. Uh, and there's a lot of hesitancy. Is, is that the reason why we're seeing what we're seeing? Absolutely. And I think we've mentioned in the past, uh, people, countries could take two, two pathways here. They could take the zero COVID route, and China did that originally, and they did it very well. So did Singapore, uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong. And that, that's really a case of saying, let's, let's monitor everybody who comes into the country, make sure that they are screened and thoroughly, uh, you know, vacuumed out and, uh, and, 
and, and monitored and so on, and we'll keep the darn thing out. And they were very so. So, Tim, let me countries. stop you. Let me stop you there, Tim. So, in ev- we know here the mad dash was to get everybody vaccinated, and we did, thank goodness, and it's why we are where we are. But rather than concentrate on the vaccination, they moved to have a zero tolerance, meaning if you've got it, you're isolated. Forget it. Everybody's locked down. Exactly. And they built a wall around the country. And other than China, most of those people who did that, and New Zealand tried that in the beginning as well, they're all mainly islands, uh, states. And they could do that. They could control people coming in by air and sea and so on. And what they were hoping for was they'd see something like SARS-1 in 2003, that after it reached its peak, it disappeared and has never been seen again. We're back into the wildlife. But this particular COVID virus didn't do that. Uh, uh, this one has stayed around and it's now embodied in our population. And so those countries who took the zero COVID route are now having to realize that it's all very well to build a big wall around your country, but sooner or later, tourism, trade, traveling on business, whatever it is, is going to open up those doors and that brings the virus right back in again. And if your population's not properly protected with now we now understand three doses, then it's going to start all over again. And that's what's So happening. why... Why is there not a higher uptake of vaccination uh, in China? Like 30%, 80 plus vaccinated in Hong Kong. Like, I, I don't understand why if they can isolate all the people, why can't they vaccinate all of the people? Yeah, it, it's a, it was a uh, it was a, a good it, it worked in the beginning and everybody said oh yeah this may be good just hold on keep the keep the wall up keep the the gates to the city closed and maybe it'll go away outside and of course people didn't bother uh, making sure that the population is vaccinated listen when you've got a one 1.3 billion population in one country that's an awfully big venture to start vaccinating that whole lot well they're doing it now they're trying to get as many as possible but I would, suggest, vac- I would suggest I would I would suggest it's as almost impossible to keep them in their houses as it is to vacuum uh, or vaccinate yeah. them all. No, yeah. Uh, well, absolutely, and it is difficult. In fact, they, you know, they had to bring in, you know, police and army and so on. But they managed to do it in a country like that. They could do it. But, but now we're seeing Hong Kong, for example, is in real trouble now because it it only had a, a few hundred cases back about halfway through, and now it's surging. They're they're stacking bodies in the in the corridors of hospitals because they can't get rid of them fast enough, and they're trying to get the vaccines out. But of course, you know, it's a bit late in the game, and they're beginning to realize that that wasn't the the correct route. And I understand that their vaccine, um, and I don't know if this was the CanSino vaccine that, that we were involved with for a, a period of time, but their vaccine is old technology. It really wasn't as good as, say, a Pfizer or Moderna, and it's basically ineffective against Omicron, which is why this is spreading. Why don't they just call up and get some Pfizer? Uh, I think the, the supply is a, is, is a problem, actually. The demand, there's no problem with demand, but supply, where is it going to come from for that number of dosage? Uh, I'm sure that there must be factories there now producing it, uh, whether it's under license or not, because the, well, they're going to find some way around of doing that. But, uh, yeah, this is a bit late. And while these countries now we're in, uh, Western Europe, Canada, uh, we're seeing the numbers reaching a fairly low level. It's not, not gone yet. We're still in pandemic may phase, but it's on the low end of the foothills now. We haven't quite gone all the way, all the way to endemic. But it's, uh, it's, this has soon turned out to be probably the better way to go. And should we be worried since our vaccination rates are so high and are effective against Omicron? Is this a concern for us here? 
you can never never double double uh, estimate or, or or second guess this particular mm -hmm. virus. Just play tricks right from the beginning. At the moment, keep your fingers crossed and everything else you've got crossed that we don't get another really bizarre uh, variant along because that could turn the thing back to square one on the game. But so far, we've got a good wall of uh, let's call it a wall of immunity, either by having been vaccinated one, two, or three times, plus having been infected, plus maybe been infected again a second time. Uh, some some studies have done, they found that something in the low or mid 90% of people have got some immunity right now in Ontario. And that's going to protect us. We've done the right thing by getting the vaccine. What I would not want to be right now, Scott, is a person walking around unvaccinated. Because mm, you are 100% uh, vulnerable and the virus is out to get you. It will get you within a week or months. Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist, School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson University. As always, Tim, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We certainly have heard of uh, the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia. Uh, many asking how much of an impact they'll have, who will feel it. The oligarchs obviously uh, hit as well. Now we are hearing that Russia is defaulting on bonds. And the article from the Globe and Mail, sanctions, savage, uh, sanctions savaged Russia teeters on the brink of historic default. To talk more about all of this, Eric Cam is with us, Professor Macroeconomics, Monetary Economics, International Monetary Economics with Ryerson, and is with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. I hope you're well and everybody's well in the hammer. Thanks so much for the time. You know, we've talked a lot about sanctions. And as I said, many wondering, you know, how much of an impact this is going to have when we watch what, what Ukraine is going through. Is this a result of that? And uh, and then explain exactly what has happened here. Well, it's exactly a result of the world getting together and saying, we don't know exactly how to stop this mad person, but we know how to start, which is taking it out on he and his economy. So what you have right now is a situation where the Russian government owes about 600, well, no, let's say about, um, I don't know, I'll give you a, a clear number, billion, two, four, six billion dollars. But what they do owe, of course, is interest today. So they owe about $117 million in interest on bonds. And that's due today with about another $615 million coming out later in the month. So you put that on about $150 billion in total foreign currency debt. And that is a lot of money, right? So here's the thing. Russia comes back and says, well, that's not a problem. They owe this 117 million today, 615 million soon in the future. But we could pay our international bondholders as long as we're allowed to pay them in rubles because any economy can always print its own money. But here's the problem. Thanks to the quote unquote war going on, and I don't mean to say that uh, pejoratively, but no one's declared a war yet. Everybody's frozen Russian assets. So it doesn't matter that Russia has enough money to pay it in rubles. They have to pay their debts right now in U.S. currency because that's kind of the currency of trade. But they can't go get it at the bank. They can't get it at the IMF. They can't get it at the World Bank. So, yes, Russia has enough money, but no, they can't get it. So they have no hope of paying any of this interest today or interest tomorrow, and that's going to potentially default their bond market. Uh, even for Putin to say, well, we're going to pay it in rubles, that seems almost laughable. 
Well, it is laughable because because the ruble's nowhere, right? The yeah. ruble's plunged about 35% against the dollar in the past month or so, and stock trading is shut. So they have no access to money except for their rubles. But it's, you know, it'd be like you printing money in your basement and saying, well, I've got millions of dollars in Scott dollars, but Scott dollars hmm. aren't worth anything. And now rubles aren't either. And so here's what happens when all this comes together. You say, who's hurt the most by this? And for better or for worse, it's Russia. Because the Russian government, believe it or not, looking at the world is not terribly indebted. Right. Russia's domestic debt is only about 13 percent of its gross domestic product. Its external debt is about 150 billion, but only 45 billion of that is owned by the Russian government. So what does that mean? It means that we are not that susceptible and we are sort of insulated from the, those types of debt issues, meaning that Russia's debt is going to help collapse Russia's economy, which no matter who you're cheering for is what the sanctions were meant to do. So the the question is, what will happen to Russia? Who will prop them up? How will they get through this? Is China a candidate to prop them up? China is absolutely a candidate to prop them up. India is as, as somebody who could come in and prop them up. Listen, there's no question that as a mad person that he is, every mad person needs mad friends. And Putin is going to need partners. Now, you'd need a crystal ball to know exactly their work, where they're going to come from. Uh, but he better hope they come from somewhere or you're going to see what you saw in 1917 and 1998, which is a collapse of the Russian economy. And what about Russians? How does this affect Russians on the ground? They're obviously receiving misinformation at this point, being fed uh, through only state media. Does this help? Does this draw more attention to what is happening in the world? Well, you hope so, because there are many, many Russians who are not very happy about what's going on. And who is this going to hurt the most? Well, let me let you in on a little secret. It never hurts billionaires the most. It's going yeah. to most adversely affect the Russian population. Average people like you and me who are watching the purchasing power of their money go through the floor. Their dollars are going to be worth less if anything at all. So unfortunately, it's it's John and Joan Q public who are going to end up poorer than they wanted to, caught in a war that they never asked to enter. So does this just keep continuing? Is this will this just uh, keep spiraling for Putin? I think it does, because I think the world is only getting and only really begun to get struck in at these economic consequences. I mean, these are really big numbers. But as I said, the only way you're going to make inroads, I mean, I'm not a military expert, but if you're not going to attack on the ground and in the air, number three is attacking through the banking system. So the United States and all the countries that are banded together have to be diligent, they have to be persistent, and they've got to be very heavy handed and say, we're going to do nothing short of collapsing the Russian economy, which Scott, if they keep it up like this, they actually could. Lots of chatter about the oligarchs getting hit. Does that what sort of impact does that have? Do these people, these billionaires have as much control over Putin as we think? I have absolutely no idea. I wish I knew more about political science. I really do. I know that oligarchs are either billionaires or millionaires in my experience and talking to other people. So again, wealthy people tend to stay wealthy. I am far more concerned with working citizens of Russia, who, as I say, are watching their real dollars and their real purchasing power erode very quickly. How long can this go on? Uh, probably a while. I mean, it, the, the answer is, can Russia get trading partners? 
Can Russia find people to come out of the wilderness and help prop them up? If they can get someone like China to prop them up, this can go on for quite a while. And if they can't, probably not terribly long. I can't put a date and a time on it. But if they can't find partners to prop up either their currency, their trade, or, or, or frankly, just give them transfers and handouts, the Russian economy does not have long. They don't have the sustained power because they can't get at their American dollars. And if you don't have your foreign currency resources, Scott, you don't have anything. Eric Ham with us, Professor Macro Monetary and International Monetary Economics, Ryerson University, talking about Russia defaulting on bonds, the result of pinching sanctions. Eric, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Always a pleasure. Stay healthy, my friend. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Inflation up 5.7%. Are you surprised? Uh, fresh frozen beef, 16%. Uh, fridges, freezers, 15%. Own accommodation expenses, 14%. Milk, 5.8%. Uh, rent, 42 New houses, 13 Gasoline, 32%. Uh, let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now and talking a lot about this. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing very well, thanks, Scott. Before we get to the 5.7 inflation, uh, we just talked to our last guest about Russia uh, defaulting on uh, bond interest payments. Uh, can't get to the U.S. dollars, apparently, and this is the fallout of sanctions. How long can this go on for them? For Russia, you mean? Mm-hmm. Um, um, first off, I, I, I think they are going to default, uh, and, and I'll get right to your question. Um, but And I know people are saying, oh, my God, they owe $150 billion. Let's contextualize this. World GDP, and this is World Bank data for last year, World the world GDP of all the countries in the world is $87 trillion. Okay, let's leave out China and countries that are not very simpatico. If you just add up the Western countries and the coalition, which is where most of the wealth is and where the debt is owed, I'm talking European Union in its totality, U.S., Canada, Japan, South Korea, etc., we're about $60 trillion world GDP. And Russia, I mean, in a weird, weird way, uh, Putin did a favor because he was trying to recession, sorry, sanctions proof himself for the past 10 years, clearly preparing for this day when he was going to invade Ukraine. So what he did in the last, since he invaded uh, Croatia, excuse me, Croatia, the, uh, the, down in the south of, uh, Crimea, getting old, <laughs> the, Crimea. part of, uh, the, uh, the, uh, peninsula of Ukraine. What he did after 2014 was he said, I'm going to pay down as much of our debt as possible so we're not dependent on those Westerners. And he did an amazing job. He paid it down to $150 billion, which for an 11th largest economy in the world is very small amount. That's owed to the countries of the world that are about $60 trillion in GDP. Will this bring a catastrophic collapse to the global system? No. In fact, the IMF director has said so repeatedly. This is not going to, it's not systemically important. Is it important to those banks and those hedge funds that are going to get burned? You bet. PIMCO, for example, a huge hedge fund, has $1.5 billion of Russian bonds and another $1.5 billion of credit default swap. So it might take a big haircut, $3 billion. And if you're invested in PIMCO, that's going to hurt you. Will it cause the global economy to collapse? No. 
Not at all. It'll be. Uh, it, it's probably. And how tough Russia, for Russia, Russia Ian? Your question. Russia is going to be going. Is is widely considered. They're going to be going to a very deep recession. How deep? I've seen estimates of fifteen percent uh, by uh, Goldman Sachs. I've seen some estimates of high as twenty-five to thirty percent, which is what Canada declined and U.S. declined in the Great Depression of the nineteen thirties. GDP went down by thirty percent, which is about a third. About a third of the economy vanished. Well, Russia's looking at a decline of somewhere between fifteen percent and thirty percent, and that's truly. Uh, catastrophic. It's going to, uh, the ordinary Russians are going to suffer big time on steroids. It's going to be really, really painful. Uh, inflation here hitting 5.7%. Uh, the gas over year to year, 32% up, 7% by the month. Um, your response to this with so much of it being fuel and food? You know, I know the, um, and I'm, I know the governor of the Bank of Canada keeps talking about, you know, core inflation. Um, which excludes, guess what, food and, and yeah. gasoline. But I'm sorry, I understand their logic, but it doesn't make sense politically. Saying to the average Canadian, you know, core inflation's not going up very much because, you know, don't, don't just pretend you're not, your gas prices aren't going up. Just pretend your food's not going up. Well, it is. You still got to pay it. When you go to the checkout counter at Loblaws and it's up by that huge amount, you can't say to them, look, I don't have to pay that because the governor of the Bank of Canada said it's not part of core inflation. Mm. You know, these are distinctions that are it may be useful to a macro monetary economist, but it doesn't help the ordinary person. And, and very quickly, Scott, what is so crucial or critical about this is the, the way I like to put it is food and energy are truly existential. They're not discretionary. You can say, you know what, we're broke. We're not going to go to a restaurant this month. Sorry, restaurant entrepreneurs out there, but you're discretionary. I don't have to go to a restaurant. I've got to buy groceries yeah. for the family. I've got to pay my rent check or my mortgage payment and my utilities. you got no choice. When it's 20 below zero outside, you can't say, I'm not going to pay my heating bill for the house. The, 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 what's hitting us so hard is that we're getting hit hardest and the things that are the sing- most important, singular most important, they're, these are not T-shirt prices. You know, that you can say, oh, yeah. I don't need to buy any more T-shirts. I don't need to buy any more suits. I don't need to buy any more clothes. You know, I've got enough clothing. I can live for another year without changing the wardrobe. That's discretionary. And most items are discretionary, but not food and not energy. You've are we got just to, assu- to heat your house, and, and you've got to pay for your house. So food and shelter and energy are the, the, the holy trinity. Let's call it the holy trinity. You've got to pay them. They're absolutely essential to your existence, and those three are what are going up uh, a lot. And this is going to, I think, in the near, very near future, it's going to, um, I think there's going to be, I don't want to say a political crisis in Canada, but it's going to be getting, once oh, this horror in Ukraine has uh, been finalized, with a peace agreement or something, I think we're going to be talking a lot more about this, both in uh, Parliament and in the media, because it is affecting the ability of people to function. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, inflation rate 5.7% in February. Ian, thanks for the time. As always, be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We saw this morning uh, President uh, Zelensky of Ukraine uh, give uh, another one of his very powerful, very passionate speeches, uh, this time to U.S. Congress. Uh, Biden also watching from his residence. And, uh, of course, we've seen this with the United Kingdom. We saw it with uh, Canada earlier on this week as well. This time, again, making uh, lots of references to uh, personal landmarks and and uh, past invasions like 9/11 and and um, and Pearl Harbor and such uh, but still uh, we can't cross that NATO border for obvious reasons let's bring in dr. Jack Cunningham PhD program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity uh, Trinity College and Monk School University of Toronto and is with us now Jack thank you for the time I hope you're well not at all Scott pleasure to be with you so obviously we've seen these incredible, impactful speeches from uh, President Zelensky. Um, mm-hmm. it, appears, it appears at this point that obviously we can't cross that NATO border. You uh, he, he sort of got the feeling in this speech that he, was, he understood why uh, you know, the United States or, or ally countries could not do that. Talk about the impact of these speeches and why he keeps asking for the same thing. Well, I think the speeches are designed in large part, and 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 they may be effective because they're so uh, because they are so eloquent. Uh, they are designed in large part to generate pressure on uh, on uh, NATO governments to uh, to actually do what he wants to uh, to impose a no fly zone on uh, on Ukraine, even though intellectually he's aware of the arguments against it. I suspect he believes that this is already a larger conflict and that Putin's unlikely to stop at Ukraine anyway. Impact of these speeches, uh, especially in contrast to what we're seeing from Putin. Well, obviously, Putin is not playing his hand terribly well in terms of Western public opinion. Uh, Zelensky has has, has emerged as, uh, as something of a surprise. I mean, you may recall just a few years ago, he was basically a stand-up comedian and a sitcom star, and mm. now he's this uh, eloquent spokesman for democracy. So in that, uh, in that case, in, in that sense, he's, uh, he's had uh, a surprisingly good, uh, good war, and, uh, and Putin has had a rather difficult one. Uh, obviously, a video part of the presentation today. Uh, again, we got a doubling down that no NATO, uh, you know, they, that they will not cross that border. Do you think the more the more that we see this, that that could change? Where where do you think the line is? Is it still that border? And as long as Putin doesn't cross the NATO border, uh, that that uh, you know he can pretty much do what he's doing. Uh, it or probably will there be- is. It probably is the border because. Uh, I think it would be very difficult to unite the alliance around any any more forward posture than uh, than the current one. What about how this plays domestically when he spoke here in Canada? I, I remember watching this, and obviously a very powerful and and and, and passionate speech and such. But I couldn't help feel awkward, feel bad as a Canadian that we can't do more. Uh, does this change the discussion in Canada about domestic policy? It might change the discussion about things like defense spending and uh, the, the response to uh, Minister Jolie's statement today that you mentioned earlier is uh, significant of that. It reminds me of the old joke that in politics, a gaffe is when you unintentionally tell the truth. And the truth is we're not much of a military power. 
and that's uh, that can that's something that can be blamed on governments of both parties for uh, for a fairly long time. Uh, and the fact is, we're not in a position to do uh, do a lot to help Ukraine. We're not in uh, we're not among the uh, the leading powers in NATO in terms of what we spend. And uh, since uh, since Afghanistan, we've uh, we've not really been one of the uh, the leading powers in terms of what we do. Although I do give uh, kudos to the government for uh, maintaining its uh, its position in the Baltics. Does her statement signal that we're going to change that, or is it admission that no, we're not supposed to be a, a, a big military power? This is what we are, and that's what it is. Because I'm I'm sure historically a lot may may want to debate that. Well, historically, a lot would debate that. The fact is, we were uh, we were a military power in uh, in both world wars. We participated in Korea. We've not we've not been whatever the uh, the mythology of the peaceable kingdom suggests a nation of quasi pacifists. We've been uh, a warrior nation on 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 occasion when circumstances demanded it, and it's arguable that this uh, this is sort of an indication that uh, the government is aware which way the winds are blowing. How do you think this is going to end, Jack? Will this uh, be drawn out? Obviously, it's gone on longer at 21 days than anybody thought it would. Um, is this just going to be an exhaustive effort where nobody wins? Well, relatively few wars actually win with an overwhelming mm. clear-cut victory by one side or the other. More likely, they end with uh, ceasefires or peace settlements or, or, or stalemates. Uh, and that's uh, that's more likely here. The fact is, the Ukrainians don't have the uh, the military muscle, even with NATO assistance, to uh, to kick the Russians out. And uh, the Russians don't have the power to uh, subjugate Ukraine, which is uh, a very large country, and which obviously is uh, is increasingly united against them. So it's that- it's hard to see uh, it's hard to see this ending with a, a clear cut victory for either side. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. Program Coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You too. All right, as we watch the Russian invasion of Ukraine through its 21st day, many said at the beginning of all of this that they thought it would take maybe a couple of days and uh, um, off they would go, very similar to Crimea. Obviously, uh, the exact opposite has happened, although Ukraine, my goodness, with uh, millions leaving as refugees and uh, their cities being you know, bombed to bejeebers, uh, obviously they're taking a tremendous hit, but many thought they could not survive uh this long and it certainly also says something about the big russian war machine uh that we all remember from you know the soviet union days the ussr days clearly isn't what it once was with ukraine even with fortification from the allies has uh, been seeming them seemingly holding everybody off or the russians off uh for this long but what is the out where does this go we all know that uh, president Zelensky is looking for uh some air support but as soon as we cross those board, uh, those NATO borders uh, and, and ally or American jets start fighting on Russian uh, military, uh, we start World War III. So where's the off-ramp? What's the out here? Let's bring in Joshua Tucker, professor of politics, director of the Jordan Center for Advanced Study of Russia, co-director of NYU Center for Social Media and Politics, and is with us now. Joshua, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
So what is an out for Putin? I would assume he's already embarrassed that his war machine hasn't made a, a, a quicker job of this. Is he looking for an out at this point, or is he just trying to avoid humiliation? Uh, it's a good. I mean, he's certainly trying to avoid humiliation. That we, we know for sure. I mean, the out really and the off ramp here really depends on what we think was the goal originally. Right. If the goal originally was to try to improve Russia's security situation vis-a-vis NATO, then there is a potential off ramp. You can imagine a world where there are deals that can be cut in that regard uh, around things like, you know, restricting maybe NATO activity in the farther farthest eastern part eastern members of NATO, uh, permanent neutrality for Ukraine, Ukraine swearing off joining NATO. That's a set of you know, as difficult it is to imagine, that's a set of potential negotiated outcomes. Uh, If you think his goal, on the other hand, was either to rectify this great wrong of the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which he famously called, you know, the greatest tragedy of the 20th century, or even worse, if you think it's really that, that Ukraine needs to be subjugated because a democratic Ukraine is a danger to an autocratic Putin's hold on power long term in Russia, and then, then what Putin really needs is to sort of crush Ukraine and, and turn it into a, a state that's subservient to Russia. And it's really hard to see how you have any off-ramp there that the Ukrainians would ever agree to. Uh, and then that suggests this is a, you know, a long, longer, much longer than anybody's expected, drawn out military conflict, which now Putin has shown an, 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 a willingness to make incredibly violent with, you know, wanton disrespect for for human life and civilian casualties here. Is the prize worth it? I mean, Zelensky alluded today uh, that NATO or or that, you know, they're not interested in joining NATO. Maybe many thought that's something to do with the the peace talks that have been going on. So that has been thrown out that it appears they're willing not to join NATO. Does that have any impact? Yeah, as I said, if you think that that was Putin's goal originally, then that's where we're going to get. That's where we have room for some sort of negotiated outcome. It has that to be being said, that being said, Joshua, this has already been brought up. Would this not have had an impact already? Putin said, oh, I hear he doesn't want to join NATO. Then, you know, let's talk. Let's do this. Let's do, you know, but that doesn't seem to have had it right. too much of an effect at this point. Will it change, say, when there's the summit in Brussels? Yeah, well, my, you know, my colleagues who study war tell me that you get negotiated settlements to wars only when both sides no longer think they can do better on the battlefield. And so I don't think it's I don't think it's correct to say, well, just because something was brought up a week and a half ago as a potential Mm -hmm. solution, as an off ramp, that that won't work a week and a half in the future, because you're constantly learning things. And and one of the things as you started off with your lead remarks that Putin's learned is that his his military forces are not as uh, powerful as he thought they were. Now, of course, the Ukrainians have also learned that his military forces were not as powerful as they thought they were. But perhaps the Ukrainians have also learned that maybe they, were, they had held out hope that the types of scorched earth tactics the Russian military had used in Grozny and Chechnya or Aleppo and Syria, maybe they wouldn't use against Ukrainians because of the sort of shared common history, because they're both Eastern Orthodox Slavic, uh, you know, people with, you know, a larger history. Maybe Ukrainians thought that the war wouldn't be as brutal because of that. So so there's constantly new information that's being learned. Um, but, you know, again, the the idea that uh, when when someone like Putin, as you said, he doesn't want to be humiliated 
And if he learns his military plans to quickly subjugate Ukraine don't work, it's, it's almost pushing him into a corner. And so that makes you a little more nervous about what he might do in that context. Again, well, many times, many are trying to figure out what the goals are uh, and what his goals are. That being said, you know, it's obviously we've seen as we're, we're discussing that the military, the Russian military is not what it once was. So there was a fear that if he took uh, Crimea, then he took Ukraine, he'd keep going and, and try to take the smaller Baltic states. Does he have the army to do that? I mean, if he's having this much issue with with Ukraine, obviously they're not the powerhouse they once were. Yeah, I mean, I think let me let me say two things here. The first is that it was so that the the story here was that obviously the Soviet the Soviet military was a, a global superpower. Then the then there was a period of time where the Russian military was thought to be really weak. And Putin has now, over the last 15 years or so, been building back up the strength of the military. So I don't think it's correct to say it's just been like a decline. It's a question about how much it's been it's been built back up. But I think mm. clearly one of the things we've learned is that whereas we have seen Russian air power and willingness to sort of bomb places, you know, use mortars and the like to sort of bomb places into submission, we hadn't really seen in Syria or Grozny, you know, a great display of sort of on the ground troops. And yes, the troops are not sick of clearly not doing as well as anyone thought they were going to do in this conflict. The second question about where they might go next is just to point out that there's a really big difference between potentially going to the Baltic states, which are currently members of NATO, mm -hmm. and going to perhaps Moldova or Georgia, which are other former Soviet republics, and Georgia, there's previously been a conflict with Russia in 2008. That was the first of these Putin, you know, getting aggressive with former post-Soviet states, whether they might go towards towards Moldova and Georgia. I think going to Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, this is a much, much bigger escalation because not only is it a question of, you know, do they have the military force to sustain such a such a movement? Then you're bringing in NATO, which, you know, for all the talk of, you know, what the U.S. is doing to resupply Ukraine and all the weapons that NATO is providing to Ukraine right now, as we see, NATO at this point is not even willing to enact a no-fly zone, uh, which has limited but definitive but definitely possibilities for conflict with Russian troops. If they go into Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, we're we're, we're we're legally obligated to defend them. That will lead to direct conflict between the militaries of the West and the and and Russia. And and with Russia not able to defeat Ukraine right now, they do not want to take on NATO at this point in time. Joshua Tucker, Professor of Politics, Director of Jordan Center for Advanced Study of Russia, co-director of NYU Center for Social Media and Politics. Joshua, fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Talk soon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, and he is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing great. How are you? Uh, so far, so good. Uh, President Zelensky, the Ukraine, uh, makes another passionate speech to uh, this time the U.S. Congress, uh, very similar to what we saw in Canada, except he came with video and, and some of the carnage and just uh, tragic uh, images that we're seeing uh, from over there. Uh, but obviously still no situation. We will not cross those NATO borders uh, simply because that will cause World War Three. Uh, do you think these presentations are still having an impact uh sure they are sure they are and and you're right though the problem is is that it, it's one of those situations that you can have an impact but it still doesn't have to lead to a result or lead to yeah. a, 
an outcome that we would like. I think everybody, if you could say, Scott, that there would be no spin-off effect, I think everybody would love to see all mm-hmm. the forces of the Western world, the Americans and everyone else, go in and just blow the Russians right out of Ukraine. We'd all like to see that. Yeah. But, again, it's, it's Can't very... Do it. It's, it, you're gambling on your your that's that's you playing poker and you have a three and a four in your hand. They don't, they don't know this. Actually, you'd have better than that because you're the Americans with the army. But you're you're wagering that Putin doesn't decide he's going to press the button and blow the nukes. Yeah. And that 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 requires you to have some sense of is he just being aggressive and being belligerent now, or has he snapped? And that's one of the questions that everybody's asking, and we don't know answer to that question and if he's just uh, being belligerent you say well he's not going to go on a suicide mission then knowing that if he presses the button he will then have his own country obliterated but if he's nuts well who knows what yeah. he's thinking yeah and and many have suggested that uh one thing that has uh i think surprised a lot of people is that ukraine has put up the fight that they have and that this has gone on 21 days and and many thought it is we've talked and there's lots of bluster with with dictators and authoritarian regimes and such uh that this was an incredible force what we're learning now is he's going to have a hard time taking the rest of europe if he can't take ukraine although he still threatens with the nukes uh, but other than that, it doesn't seem that this force is as strong as it once was. No, and, and we're hearing stories that, you know, the tires that on, the, on some of the equipment were, you know, cheap dollar store tires from China, and that the, the, some of the tanks are from World War II and haven't been serviced much. Yeah. And, like, who knows what is here? But let me, let me spin something else for just a second, because, you know, there's another part of the story here that, we haven't, that has not been talked about, because, frankly, it's not in the news right now. But as all this is going on, keep in mind that there are talks that are happening about Iran's nuclear program. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking now at Russia being able to essentially do whatever it wants because of the threat, because they have nuclear weapons and the threat that they could press the button. So you can't stop us from attacking another country. You can't stop us from blowing up maternity wards because we've got the the bomb. Well, what if Iran gets it? What mm-hmm. happens then to Israel? What happens to everyone else? Because, hey, we've got the bomb. You can't do anything now. Like, this is why these, these, these talks that happened, I mean, back three presidents ago were so impactful and so important. And a lot of people said, oh, come on, don't get, we don't need to get into it with Iran about this. No, clearly, as we're looking at how the world is playing out, yeah, we did need to have these discussions. And obviously, that is why we are not crossing the line that that many are suggesting we could right now. I mean, once you flip this switch, Lord knows what happens. Of course, and and again, it all. I don't believe that anybody with sanity would would shoot off a nuclear bomb because, again, you know mm-hmm. how this thing works. You, we all watched. All, those of us old enough to be alive in about 1982 all sat there that night and watched the day after on ABC. And then we're terrified for the next two weeks about the world after everybody yeah. killed each other with a nuclear bomb uh, or a series of nuclear bombs. But if Putin is nuts, and we don't know this, that may not resonate. That may not be something that, you yeah. know, or he doesn't believe that we would do it. And, may, you know, here's the other thing, Scott. Maybe we wouldn't. Maybe the states wouldn't. Maybe we have, maybe there is now an, an attitude or a cultural thing that says, 
we could never actually press the button because of the loss of life that would result. Maybe all these bombs that the States has right now, while potentially a deterrent, maybe they mean nothing. And maybe some people like Putin are saying they would never do this under any circumstances. Therefore, I can do what I want. If everyone's got one, it changes the whole situation. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read them in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills and Diana and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. But this time, we found it only fitting to leave the last word to the Ukraine President Zelensky. Anyone who I wish you to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. Thank you. Anyone who doesn't feel heart for Zelensky wasn't born with a soul. But Biden must stay strong with refraining and ignition to Putin's poison eagle. I'm 100% with Lindsey Graham, the American senator who wants Putin put down. And I wouldn't be surprised if Putin is captured, but not killed yet. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.